Hi, my name is Felix Krüger and I'm your host. If this is your first time tuning into the State of Sales Enablement podcast, welcome and thanks for your support. If you work closely with the B2B enterprise sales team in your role, make sure to check out the free on-demand training provided by Kruger Marketing, my business and the sponsor of this podcast. The training breaks down the steps required to shorten sales cycles with the effective use of content. To access the free training session, visit thisstateofsalesenablement.com slash content. That's thisstateofsalesenablement.com slash content. Welcome to the State of Sales Enablement Podcast with your host, Felix Kruger. Insights and actionable advice from B2B marketing and sales experts that share what it takes to achieve sales enablement excellence. My guest in today's episode is a best-selling author, keynote speaker, and a content marketing legend. He's the co-founder of the Content Marketing Institute, and his consulting business has worked with over 500 companies, including Facebook, Capital One, Dell, Ernst Young, Microsoft, Thomson Reuters, Roche Pharmaceuticals, and UPS. Today, we speak to the founder of the content advisory, Robert Rose. Enjoy the show. Robert, thank you so much for joining today. I'm really excited to have you on the show. I am excited to be here. I'm disappointed that we can't be together there in Sydney, but I am very glad to be here with you, at least virtually for the moment. So for those people who don't know you and haven't heard of you, what is your professional background and what do you do now? <laughs> well, how long is your show, my friend? Because that could go on a while. <laughs> I started in TV 25, almost 30 years ago now, and I was going to be on the creative side. I was going to be a writer and a musician and all of those things. And quickly discovered that here in Los Angeles, that was a, a fruitless pursuit for myself and ultimately got into marketing and sort of fell in love and really just discovered all of the depths of the marketing practice and really, you know, cut my teeth in television and then ultimately in consulting in the agency side where I really got to know technology and B2B marketing. And then I was the CMO of a software company, a B2B software company in the early 2000s and ultimately decided that I was going to try this new thing. You know, they plopped a bunch of money down on my desk and said, marketing, go do that. And I ended up building a team of journalists and writers and content producers and designers because my theory was as a small startup, we needed to be a mile deeper than any of our competition because our competition in those days was, you know, Hewlett Packard and IBM and Microsoft and, you know, huge technology companies that we were never going to win against if we were winning against brand or SEO or budget or anything like that. So ultimately, my theory was if we were the thought leader in our space, in our tiny little space, we could win. And we did. We ended up growing the company quite significantly. And I was out telling my story about how I had built this practice of content creators and really built a little media company inside this B2B software company. And I met this guy, Joe Polizzi, and he was creating this thing called the Content Marketing Institute. I didn't even know it had a name. And he and I got along famously and just became friends right away. And so I joined him as chief strategy officer at this new thing called the Content Marketing Institute, which was a media company really built to evangelize this whole process. And over the next 10 years, we really sort of built an organization that 
was focused on events and consulting and helping organizations really understand the, the process. And then since the acquisition of CMI in 2016, Joe rode off into the orange sunset, as it were, with his big pocket full of money. And I still work for a living. <laughs> so I now have my own consulting firm where I work with organizations to help them operationalize this process of content strategy, content marketing. And I do all of that under my own name now. And I still work closely with CMI, but I do it under the advisory, what we call the content advisory. And in the meantime, I've written a couple of books that did pretty well, host a podcast, do a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, now I'm here at home talking to you. <laughs> that's awesome. It's been a long journey for you. <laughs> well, I'm old. Yeah, that's the key <laughs> in operating word there, yes. I think that's really where content marketing and sales enablement are quite similar. There's a lot of people who've done it before it was actually called that. And I think that's what sustainable trends always have in common, that there's a lot of people doing it before it has a fancy name. But yeah, it's obviously a clear indicator that it has now entered the mainstream. It has. And in fact, some people would say it's probably jumped the shark a little bit in terms of how cliche it's become now. But in many ways, and this is especially true as we look globally, where for many companies that are either global in nature or situated elsewhere, this is a new thing for them, a new muscle for many organizations. And even though the practice itself is not new, it's a new muscle for many organizations who are trying to evolve out of the classic rinse and repeat idea of campaign-based advertising and marketing. So the fundamentals of it are not new, but in many ways, the approach of it is foreign to many businesses, especially in B2B. And what sort of brands do you work with now? Really varies. What we find is that there are industries that take to this a little more than others. And B2B is certainly a, a category of that for sure. We tend to work with a lot of financial services, technology, and I would say healthcare, but it's primarily pharma companies. These are industries, I think, from my perspective anyway, that are undergoing fundamental transition as the quote unquote digital transformation takes effect. So I think that's a lot in many ways, some of the things that we're seeing. And in some of the other cases where we work with consumer packaged goods companies or durables or anything like that, it's more of the trend of the direct to consumer sort of move that's forcing and forcing maybe the wrong word, but pressing, let's say, companies to look at content in a different way, right? So not just in a direct marketing and advertising way, but as a valuable function that can create great experiences for their customers, independent of what it is they actually sell. What I'm particularly interested in is what you've done in the B2B marketing and sales space with content. From your experience, how has the way B2B marketing and sales organizations use content has changed over time? One of the things I think is so interesting about B2B and marketing and sales alignment is how unaligned we've been for so long. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I'm old. I've been around for a while. So it used to be that marketing and sales were misaligned, but most of it was because the sales department was convinced, and in many cases they were right, that marketing was more concerned about the Pantone colors or the way that the logo was being used than they were actual sales enablement. 
And in many cases, sales sort of created their own materials and they created their own strategies. And there was a lot of tension there. And in many organizations, it still exists. But the primary way that it's changed is for so many years, the relationship with content between sales and marketing has been one of give me more sales-oriented, promotional-oriented content. In other words, give me a better brochure, give me a better one-sheet, give me a better call to action, give me a better catalog, and I'll call you again when I need you. And the way that's changed now is that you know, marketing, as it's begun to shift to more of a thought leadership and differentiating type of experience for B2B customers as the whole buying journey has really shifted with digital education and those sorts of things. Well, now that salesperson is now challenged with having a different kind of conversation and marketing is beginning to help. And the alignment really comes from that help of marketing, helping sales to have a much more intelligent and consultative conversation with prospects that are moving through the journey. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, telling development that I've seen over time also was that there's more of an understanding of both teams working together in a revenue department and there's different skill sets but at the same time they've got the same goals and I think that alignment in terms of goal setting is really crucial to make that setup work. It's a fascinating thing because especially in B2B and when we look at companies like manufacturing related companies or even heavy industry oriented companies, consulting firms. The whole concept of marketing is new. One of my favorite things to do is to read old marketing textbooks. <laughs> and I know that sounds kind of geeky, but now you know how I spend my evenings. And I'm reading this book right now. It's written by James Culleton, who was a Harvard business professor in marketing in the 1940s. It was the book that introduced the four Ps to B2B marketing. And in that book, it's fascinating because the book opens up by saying B2B organizations don't even understand what marketing is, much less have a refined process for it. You know, this is not that old. This is only 60 years ago, 70 years ago that we were still even trying to figure out what marketing is in B2B other than the product marketers saying, hey, here's the features, here's the benefits, here's how you should speak to the product and sales going, thank you very much and going and doing exactly that. The whole idea of being clever in a thought leadership perspective or telling stories or enabling with education, that's all literally within the last 10 or 15 years that that's even existed. And so for many businesses, this is brand new. Yeah, it's amazing how far we've come in such a short amount of time. Yeah. I'm also particularly interested in regional differences always. And obviously the North American market being much, much bigger than the Australian market and you being familiar with the Australian market, what sort of differences do you see in the way B2B companies use content in both regions? The interesting thing is what I appreciate so much about the Australian market is that it is a follower, but it's a fast follower. And all of my experiences with Australian companies are they look to the U.S. and say, hey, listen, we can look at what you're doing and follow it. But they're also avoiding a lot of the mistakes that U.S. companies made. And I'll give you one example. One of the challenges of content marketing that really emerged in the, call it 2010, 2011, all the way to the 2013 timeframe was the American market and still 
to this day has some challenge with this, got really wrapped around the axle of SEO, right? It was all content for SEO, content for search, content for being found, content, content, content for Google, content for this search, content for that search, without it being high quality or focused in on how to have a deeper conversation with a prospect or differentiating in its point of view or anything like that. And when I work with Australian companies, they've largely avoided that and really jumped right into, if we're going to do this, let's do this the right way, which was to focus on quality and really get much more deeply into the content topic itself, rather than too focused on how it's going to rank for Google. Mm, I love that. I think what I always notice in the Australian market is that it's a skilled market, but it's not very well resourced compared to North America. Well, yeah, uh, there's which, that too. I mean, and it's yeah. somebody told me once, it was an Australian who said this, who I thought was really on the money, which is Australia really is a country of small businesses, right? Small and medium-sized businesses. And so as such, even if the businesses are big, they're typically much smaller than they are in the US. And so you have that lack of, let's call it, big, huge, enormous campaign-oriented budgets, but you also have a much more entrepreneurial focus as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think what you often see is American companies that have a satellite office over here in Australia, they support the Australian office to a certain degree from a marketing perspective, but the Australian office still has to be very resourceful in the way they actually make that support work, especially when we talk about customizing content, localizing content, and operationalizing that content from a marketing and sales perspective. There still has to be a lot of work done locally to actually have that market impact that you would expect. Yeah, absolutely, yes. There's certainly a shared language, but the culture is very, very different. Yeah, absolutely. I came across a research piece that you have recently created at CMI in collaboration with LinkedIn that specifically looked at the alignment of marketing and sales. Talk a bit about what some of the key questions were that you tried to answer in this research and what sort of insights you uncovered. Yeah, it was one of my favorite projects, I have to say. So first of all, thank you for finding it. I really enjoyed this project and working with the LinkedIn team was really great too. The major question we wanted to explore was not just looking at marketing and sales alignment, which I mean, throw a rock and you'll hit a research study on that. But we wanted to look specifically at content marketing and sales alignment. And there were a lot of interesting things that came out of that study, and not the least of which was to say, okay, let's look at is the general state of alignment good or bad? And I think we generally found that it's very much like most industries and broadly speaking, marketing and sales alignment, where it's not terribly aligned and especially in larger organizations, right? So not as much and smaller for that makes sense, right? The teams are smaller, but in bigger organizations for sure. And I think the things that jumped out at me in terms of you know, what was so interesting was one, the gap between those who actually had a content marketing strategy and sales alignment it was off the charts, the biggest gap, right? So, you know, 75% of those who consider themselves aligned have a content marketing strategy and 25% of those who are unaligned have a content marketing strategy. And so you can pretty quickly correlate that a content marketing strategy is important if you want to have an alignment. And then when we sort of looked and drilled in deeper and said, okay, where are those alignment barriers, right? Where we sort of, you know, said, where are you struggling to get alignment between sales and content marketing? And the two keys were 
different incentives and they're measured differently. And that's critical. How are you going to be incentivized to create value for the organization? And how do you measure those incentives? And what we see so often in that is we have such different ways of being measured. You know, there's a famous quote that I love and I bring it up always in my workshop by Eli Goldratt, who is a physicist and business guru. And what he says is, tell me how you'll measure me and I'll tell you how I'll behave. And if you measure me in an illogical way, well, don't complain about illogical behavior. And I think that's a perfect metaphor for where we see content marketing and sales alignment, which is they're measured completely differently. Content marketing in many ways is measured on visits and downloads and how many people we got to the website. And of course, sales is measured by revenue. And so from sales's perspective, all the content marketing people care about is getting eyeballs. And from content marketing's point of view, all sales cares about is closing a deal. So I don't want to give you more stuff to be deeper or to educate more fully because all you care about is a better sales sheet. And the salespeople go, all I want is a better sales sheet because you can't help me close a deal because all you care about is doing cat videos. And that's kind of where it is right now, right? And then there was a bunch of other stuff that we went down into in terms of some of the better practices that we're seeing between those who actually do have alignment. One insight that really jumped out at me was related to the communication between sales and marketing teams. And there was one stat that stated that organizations with high sales and content marketing alignment meet weekly and about 30% even meet daily, which is quite extraordinary, I think, that there's very close communication going on in those organizations. What do you think some of the information that you would recommend sales and marketing exchange in these kind of meetings for mutual benefit? Yeah, it was an amazing result. And what I found so interesting about that result is, you know, certainly yeah, daily and weekly, right? So frequent conversation and collaboration is happening between those teams that are aligned. And the one that made me laugh was the biggest one for unaligned teams was only when necessary, right? So we only meet with them <laughs> when we absolutely have to, right? When there's somebody puts pizza in the conference room and we'll have to go talk with them. You know, the funny thing is, when I was a CMO of a software company and I got along great with my VP of sales and the two of us would get our respective teams together, we did it on a weekly basis. And quite honestly, the culture that I liked to instill in my marketing team was the salespeople are your best storytellers. They are the ones who are going to tell the stories and be your distribution channel of content. They will be your best distribution channel of content. And from a sales perspective, it was sort of like we tried to instill this culture of you are the expert. You are going to be the one that they turn to. In the best B2B sales experience, you don't sell somebody. Somebody comes to a self-discovery that you're the one that they want to buy from. And the only way that happens is when you are helping them solve a problem. And so that became sort of our partnership and the agenda for every meeting. We would ask them, what are you getting asked? What are you talking about? What are the stories you're telling? How are they resonating? And then vice versa, they would ask us, what are you seeing from the marketplace? What are you seeing in the broader trends? What challenges can we put out to our the people that we're having conversations with? 
And it was really that exchange of information. We never really even needed to do things like talk about measurement and talk about pipeline. And we didn't even need to do those things because the primary alignment between what we were trying to do was they were going to be our mouthpiece as marketers. And because they were going to be our mouthpiece, we wanted to write stuff that made it easy and simple for them to tell those stories and help them tell those stories. Because not all salespeople know they're not experts in your industry per se, and sometimes they're not even experts in the products. But if you can help them become that way so that they can passionately and in an educated way talk about the problems that the customer is going to have, well, then those customers are much more likely to ultimately come to the conclusion that your brand, your company is the one they want to buy from. I love that. I think sales and customer success in some cases is the ultimate feedback channel. There's no better qualitative feedback channel you can have. That's exactly right. And we found that as well, right? I mean, it was who better to talk to than the people that are actually talking with the customer. One of my biggest passions and or pet peeves, depending on how you come at it, is when marketing isn't allowed to speak with customers. And we made it a point that we had a customer advisory board that we would speak with where our persona development, as it were, was an ongoing process that we would revisit once a quarter to make sure that we were keeping up with all the issues and making sure that the messaging was aligning and making sure that what we were talking about was still relevant to all of them. And it was incredibly important for us to be not only saying we were thought leaders, but to be demonstrating it as well, but to be answering the questions that were relevant that quite frankly, the customer might not even know that they had, right? We talk a lot these days about marketing content being sort of the FAQ, right? Answer every question that your customer might have. And that's important. There's That's for sure. But answering every question your customer is ever going to have is only going to get you to average. It's only going to get you to satisfactory. The way that you go to extraordinary is that you answer the questions that they don't know that they have, but when you suggest it, they go, oh my gosh, yes, I need to know that. That's how you Mm. take it to a thought leadership perspective. Exactly. And that's also where you really build the relationship, right? And you're not just a resource, but you are actually a partner, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of B2C companies who try and build relationships with customers at scale, they're pretty envious of the B2B space and the ability to truly build relationships through sales teams that talk to their customers on a regular basis. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. For these days, some of the things that we discovered in this research was what has been discovered in other research that in B2B marketing and sales, we talk about how the sales and marketing process has changed so fundamentally. And what we often don't talk about is how the buying process has changed fundamentally. You know, we often say, oh, the buyer these days, they have more power. There's an asymmetric relationship between information of the buyer and the seller. And all those things are true, but the buyer doesn't want that. I really want to have an asymmetric relationship with the people I'm buying from said no customer ever, right? (laughs) The fact that they now have the responsibility for going and researching and being twice as smart as the salespeople about what they want to buy. And that's not a pleasurable thing for them. That's just something that they have to do now because their boss expects it. When they're assigned to go acquire some new widget or some new piece of equipment or some new service, and they have to go become a subject matter expert in that, and they can because Google and the internet exists, well, you know, they've got other things that they probably would care to do other than become a subject matter expert in this thing. And so 
any seller that can become a partner and help that customer become more knowledgeable about it is in a really good spot. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. I want to come back to the point that you mentioned about the customer advisory board. How did you go about forming that and what were the incentives for customers to participate? Because it's obviously a valuable resource for companies. Yeah, it's one that we took great care in. And one, by the way, that weren't always customers. There were plenty of people on our customer advisory board that never purchased anything from us, but they were friends, family, contacts, colleagues in the industry that we happened to really respect their opinion and all of that and put them together. And they were kind enough to participate and we would do the usual dinners and make it worth their while. Concentric circles. So we had a bigger group that would make up the quote unquote customer advisory group. I don't think we actually ever called it a board, but we called it a group or a team or just a customer advisory set of people. And the bigger group we would send surveys to. We would do more quantitative types of approaches and send them questions and do occasional surveys and that sort of thing. And then we had a smaller group, which would be made up of the bigger group. And that would vary based on access, need, time, availability, all that sort of thing, where we would, if we were, let's say, for example, we were going to an event, a big industry event, and we knew six or seven of them or 10 of them were going to be at an event, we would have a dinner. And as part of the dinner, we would have a facilitated discussion about what we could learn and all of those things. And it was just invaluable information to do it as frequently as we could. So the way I like to look at it is from sort of three perspectives. One is ask them, ask them what they think about things. Two, watch them. In other words, what is their behavior in real life like when they're not being asked? And that helps you get over the sort of, I always use privacy as a great example of this, right? If I ask you if you care about privacy, you'll undoubtedly say yes. I care deeply about it. And then when I ask you, well, when was the last time you changed your Facebook settings? Well, never, right? Okay, so you really don't care that deeply about it. And then the third one is, what does the industry say? Like when we would go out and look at industry research and we triangulate all of that. And the customer advisory board was really one piece of that tripod, if you will, of asking people what they think about various issues and the industry and their point of view on these things. By the way, it was very rarely about product. We had a whole other group that interviewed existing customers about, hey, you know, how can we make the interface of our software better? How can we do this better? How can we do that better? This was purely about they're thinking about life, basically. In terms of the digital transformation of the B2B marketing and sales space, everybody's talking about how COVID-19 has accelerated the transformation. And yeah, B2B marketing and sales are certainly part of that. What sort of role do you think content plays in that whole setup? And how can it support the digital transformation of B2B marketing and sales? Yeah, in many ways, I think that has been overstated. Not the acceleration. The acceleration has certainly occurred. But a lot of that depends on how we define digital transformation, right? I mean, what I think has happened over the last year, at least from my perspective, my observation, is that, and this is purely for B2B, the acceleration of change has really been on two fronts, which is one, how do we collaborate with our colleagues in a way that we couldn't before, right? In other words, we were enabled to collaborate whether we did or not was kind of not the point, but we at least had the ability to show up and meet them at the coffee machine and have conversations in a conference room and get together and look over someone's shoulder as they made a phone call and learn and collaborate with our colleagues. And of course, all of that is now 
out the window with work from home and the virtual world that we have to live in. And in many cases, sales has to learn how to use content all over again, right? And what we've been calling it is sort of the preciousness of the physical space. In other words, in a world where physical presence is decommoditized, where it is absolutely precious and everything from visiting with your customer at a conference that no longer exists in person to visiting with your customer at a cafe, to having dinner, to taking them to golf, to sitting at the foot of a table and doing a PowerPoint presentation in a big room. All of those places where we would normally have physical presence with a client is gone now. And in its place has come digital content, doing PowerPoints over Zoom and delivery of more written documents and those sorts of things. So that has changed the nature of content creation for sure, because the way that we now have to let digital experiences act as a proxy to the things that we did in the physical realm have completely changed the way that businesses look at creation, activation, and promotion of the digital content. And then from the buying side, I think one of the things that we're seeing is because people are consuming media, I saw a statistic the other day that we're consuming twice as much media, but we're not doing it in the same ways anymore, right? We're doing it on mobile. We're doing it on our iPad. We're doing it in front of a computer screen. We're not going to the movies, all of those kinds of things. And so as customers and consumers learn about and want to get themselves educated, like we were talking earlier about a particular product or service, well, content has to fill that role. And so for those businesses that are leaning into the whole, we're going to make a better digital catalog and we're going to make a better one sheet that's now a PDF instead of a print thing. And we're going to make a better marketing front page of our site, maybe missing out because the real quote unquote revolution or the innovation that's happening for content to play a role in this digital experience is for it to help those buyers get educated much earlier, as I like to call it, teaching customers how to be customers. Instead of teaching knowledgeable people about how to be better customers, it's we have to teach those customers that they have a problem in the first place. And so digital content plays an important role there to help educate markets. And that's the role that B2B companies have to start playing now because the conferences aren't there, the media companies are going out of business, newspapers are struggling, all of these things are happening in a way where the place we can develop trust and inspiration with our target market is through digital content. And now because of the sales thing, it has to apply throughout the entirety of the journey. So we have to connect all of those places. So now it's not good enough to have, oh, it's cool. We got sales guys that have electronic Rolodexes and their Excel spreadsheets and all of that. That's all fine. Once they get to the website, marketing will take over. Nope, that's not good enough anymore. You've got to connect it in a way that makes it personalized and personal for all of those customers coming to your website so that you know where to direct them, you know which content is the best next experience for them to have. And that's changed the whole calculus of the way that we buy technology, use technology, and apply it to a content process. So it's increased, I would say, our need for the same content technologies that we've been toying with for the last five or six or seven years. And it's now time to get serious about it, right? And now it's time to actually not just toy around with it anymore. 
It's no longer good enough that sales guys are comfortable, quote unquote, with this solution, but it's kind of disconnected from the rest of the business. Nope. It has to be connected in and it has to be appropriate and it has to be made efficient for everybody because we're all working in remote ways now. One of the things that I've really observed over the last six months or so was that the mindset has really shifted in terms of using digital to reduce friction. Digital transformation can never happen for the digital transformation's sake. I think that's where a lot of companies fall over if they just introduce tools that feel really digital but don't in the end deliver the outcomes that they're seeking. But if you think about the friction that the pandemic has introduced in the whole process and in the whole setup, digital transformation in the end from a sales perspective in particular is really all about reducing friction. And I think companies that have been doing well over the last 12 months or so, they've really been able to tackle this issue head on and have used content effectively to reduce that friction for the buyer. Yeah. Not only provide a similar experience to what the pre-pandemic had, but actually to improve the experience because it is much more streamlined, they can measure it better, and they get to the point quicker because they have become aware that the buyer mindset has also changed. They don't have time to sit through 50-slide uh, PowerPoint decks anymore. You really have to get to the point or the buyer loses interest. Yeah, it's that insight, right? In the very, very tactical example, it's like you've got a sales guy who has a conversation with a prospect and it's a deep conversation and they do a PowerPoint. And it used to be that that salesperson would then run down to the marketing team and say, I need this and this and this and this, this relevant piece, this relevant piece and this relevant piece. And they'd quickly put all those things together into a packet and they'd put it all, customize it for the sales guy and away he goes and then sends it off to the prospect. And hopefully it's all relevant, et cetera, et cetera. All of that now has to happen in technology because there is no running down the hall. There is no running into the office and saying, hey, let's pull this out of the files and staple it together and put it all in a packet. It all has to be done in a digital way and, and it has to be done quickly and efficiently because you don't have two weeks to do this anymore. This needs to be done instantaneously. Mm. I think another trend that I've also seen, which also kind of ties in with the content marketing mindset applied to sales is that it's now much more valuable to buyers to receive content upfront before a sales meeting. So basically get some content that they can engage with before a sales meeting. And the interaction with sales is basically just covering the key points and answering any questions that might arise. I think that whole dynamic has changed too, that it's not like a broadcast of information by sales in a point in time, but it's, it's part of the broader content experience, that sales meeting. Well, it's such an excellent point. I mean, that really is because... What it used to be was if you could get time on that person's calendar and you showed up for that hour or that 90-minute meeting, they kind of had to watch. They could hate you at the end of the 90 minutes, but you had them for all 90 minutes. You had their attention because they're in the same conference room. They're watching the same slides. They're going through the same meeting notes, et cetera. And again, you might have screwed it up. You might be perfect, but you had them for the 90 minutes. Now over Zoom, they just turn off video and they start checking email and you're <laughs> off to the, you know what I mean? And you're still on That's slide right. number 73. And so you have to make sure that they're engaged. And so it changes the tenor of the meetings that we're having. And just exactly to your point, getting them the content that they need up front so that everybody's coming to the meeting as engaged and educated as they can so that you really get to the meat and the point of this meeting quickly, because that's the way you'll hold their attention. Mm, I agree. What are some of the tips for B2B organizations who want to start using content to enable sales? For those who just get started, what would you recommend? I think the key is, is that in a collaborative way, take a beat 
Because what typically happens, the classic trap that many businesses fall into is they go, okay, fantastic. We're all going to get excited about thought leadership content or educational content or how-tos, and we're going to start doing it. And sales, you're going to tell them what you need, and the content team, you're going to deliver what they need. And everybody goes, yay, and runs off. And what ends up happening is, is that it starts to work, and it scales and scales and scales, and then it doesn't scale anymore. And pretty soon, the content team is just an on-demand vending machine of assets. Just, okay, another white paper, another case study, another one sheet, another PowerPoint, another infographic, another webinar, another this, and there's no synergy at all. And the only reason there's not synergy is because sales, rightfully, is going, I need this to work for me. I need that to work for me. I need this. Because all those things are, in their mind, unique. And so I need this unique thing. And instead, take a beat from the very beginning and say, let's figure out how to create a scheduled set of big ideas. Maybe it's a dozen in a year. Maybe it's half a dozen. Maybe it's 15. I don't know what the right number is, but there's a small number of big stories, big pillars we can work on. And out of that, let's create a lot of little things, right? So in other words, let's create that amazing customer story and let's go interview them once. And instead of spending an hour with them and then ah, we didn't get this part of the story, or we didn't get a case study out of it, or we didn't get a testimonial out of it, or we didn't get this part of the technical story, whatever it is, let's spend three hours with them and film everything and slow down the content production process so that we're creating a few big projects that can ultimately be pulled apart into, yes, lots of webinars, infographics, blog posts, articles, PowerPoints, slides, whatever it is. It's just an easier thing to do. And if you can get to that point, you'll be in a lot better place. Mm, that's great advice. So you're a best-selling author, you publish lots of content on your company website, on CMI, which I would encourage anybody listening to this podcast checking out. What are some of the information sources that you would recommend for Australian sales and marketing leaders who want to create effective sales enablement content for their organizations? Well, I hear your site's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> no, you stop it. And this podcast is pretty darn good too. I would recommend, I would be remiss if I didn't recommend Content Marketing Institute. We've been putting out a lot of content, especially on this topic, B2B demand generation, B2B account-based marketing, sales enablement. We've been doing a lot in that space of late. In fact, we just had our, we just released a demand gen study and content marketing. And it's really good. Some really good insights in there as well. And very heavy on the B2B side. So CMI is probably where I'd turn to. And it's not a specifically Australian resource, but it does cover a lot of those topics. Yeah, awesome. Where can people find you online and connect with you if they want to continue the conversation after listening to this podcast? I'm on LinkedIn. I'm easy to find. I hate the way LinkedIn does their URLs. So just look for me, Robert Rose on LinkedIn, and I would love to connect with each and every one of you. I'm Robert underscore Rose on Twitter. And then of course, our website where we publish all the things that we talk about from content marketing to content strategy, et cetera, is contentadvisory.net. Awesome. Thank you so much, Robert. I've learned a lot, as always, when talking to you. And thanks so much for joining the show. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And that was it for today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please share the episode with your favorite sales enablement colleague. To subscribe and receive perks like early episode access and bonus content, visit thisstateofsalesenablement.com. Thanks so much for joining, and I'll speak to you in the next one. 
Next time on The State of Sales Enablement. Organizations that do sales enablement well see higher win rates and they also get more clients. We had a customer in the financial services space and they saw a 50% increase in new client acquisition. If your business is like 96% of all B2B companies selling remotely, chances are that your sales cycles have become longer and buyers less responsive since the pandemic started. The most successful B2B sales teams are able to reduce friction during long sales cycles by being strategic about the way they use content to engage and educate buyers. Kruger Marketing, the sponsor of this podcast, has developed a system called Content-Enabled Sales, which helps B2B enterprise sales teams to shorten the sales cycle length by strategically using content during the sales process. Listeners of this podcast gain free access to a training session that teaches you how to shorten the most complex B2B enterprise sales cycles with content. To view the on-demand training session, visit thestateofsalesenablement.com/content. That's thestateofsalesenablement.com/content.